Let's begin here with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that no one fully and exhaustively knows your Son, but you and your Holy Spirit as well. And no one exhaustively knows the Father, but the Son and the Spirit. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal those things by the Spirit. We pray that you would give us teachable hearts, eager to know more about you. We ask that you would cause our minds to function in a way that absorbs your truth, that our spiritual and theological immune system would be in place to resist all that is not your truth. We ask as well that we would be able to learn and sit at the feet of Christ, who says, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Give us that rest for our souls that we so desire in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. We return to our series of lessons on theology proper from our hiatus on uh, considering the qualifications and duties of a deacon in preparation for our upcoming diaconal election. So we're now back to theology proper, the names of God. And so far we've considered the name Jehovah, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And then we began to consider the name Elohim, which is most frequently translated God in our Old Testament. And then uh, essentially the rough equivalent of the term in Greek, theos, which is also then translated as God. So we're considering the name of God that is translated God most often in the Bible. We considered from the scriptures that this is the name that's attributed to God from the outset. Chapter 1, verse 1, very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that word Elohim. We considered its derivation, most likely from the word Allah in Arabic to fear, uh, and there are various other theories out there, but essentially this word means the, the object of worship, the one who is to be feared and honored, the strong and mighty one, sometimes the singular of this name, Eloah, which is rare, occurs, and it refers to one who is strong or mighty, and so this name is Elohim. It doubles that sense. It pluralizes that sense, the one who is ultimately most strong and most mighty. We'll see something as well about the plurality of that and its implications for the doctrine of the Trinity as well. We saw that this word is translated not only Elohim in Hebrew, but as we said, Theos in Greek. And in English, it simply appears as that most common name, God. Sometimes it's also translated in different ways, what we might say are improper ways, not inappropriate, but improper, uh, alternate ways, we could say, not, not the, the most ordinary meaning of the word, meaning God, 
in reference to all three persons or in reference to the divine nature or in reference to any one of the three persons, but rather an improper sense uh, when it's referred to false gods, when it's referred to Satan as the quote-unquote God of this world, when it's referred to angels as gods or mighty ones. We'll see something of that in Psalm 8. And when it's referred to civil authorities in Psalm 82, and Jesus makes reference to that in John chapter 10. Again, we considered those things, Exodus 21, 6, Exodus 22, 8, and 9. God, Elohim, can refer to civil magistrates. We also looked at the meaning and significance of the name Elohim in distinction from Jehovah. Again, Elohim is plural. Whereas Jehovah is one, singular, the one self-existent essence of God, Elohim indicates a plurality within that essence. And so if you have the name the Lord God, Jehovah most often translated as L-O-R-D in all caps in the Old Testament. So if we have the Lord God or Jehovah God, we have the singular self-existent essence combined with the plurality within that essence. Plurality and plenitude. It's both. Plenitude meaning the fullness. And often in Hebrew, something is made plural to show the plenitude, the fullness of that thing by way of plurality. But it's, it's both plenitude and plurality. And so there's a a plenitude and plurality with the one, within the one self-existent essence of Jehovah. That's Elohim is that plurality. Also, we saw that the term is relational. Whereas Jehovah refers to God's transcendent essence in and of himself, his transcendence, his incommunicable attributes, eternal, unchangeable, infinite. These are the things that are often associated with with. Jehovah, the name itself, comes from the Hebrew verb to be, he who is and was and is to come, the I am. But Elohim often refers to God's perfections. And when we say God's perfections, what we mean is those things that are partially seen in God's creatures, especially in his image bearers among angels and men, but seen in the fullness of within God himself. So in our larger catechism, when it says, what is God? And it answers the question toward the end of the answer, it says, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious. Those are God's perfections. Those are the things that are seen to a degree reflected in his creation. None of us reflect his infinitude or his eternality or his unchangeableness, but we do have the capacity to be wise, holy, just, merciful, gracious. So Elohim tends to be used in connection with God's communicable attributes, the ones that his image bearers are able to reflect and possess in some degree, imperfectly, if you will. And and so it's a more relational term. When God is relating to his creation, he's spoken of as the God of heaven and earth. Of meaning uh, it's a preposition showing relationship. If we said that 
a church officer is to be the husband of one wife. That word of is referring to the relationship that that husband has with his one wife. When speaking of God in relation to his creation, it's always the God of heaven and earth, never the Jehovah of heaven and earth. Does that make sense? Uh, The same thing is true in relation to his image bearers. He's called the God, the Elohim of all flesh. Jeremiah 32, 27. Angels are called sons of God. Job 1, 5. He's called the God of, but never the Jehovah of. This is a a very uh, important thing to notice as you're reading through the Bible. It's, uh, It's Elohim that's used in these relationships. Man bears not the image of Jehovah, but the image of God. Not that he doesn't bear the image of Jehovah, because Jehovah is God. But you see, the word God, Elohim, is used in that connection with respect to that reflection of God's image. We live and move and have our being in God. Adam, according to Luke 3.38, was a son of God. Also, in relation to his covenant people, he's the God of the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's Jehovah, the Elohim of his people. Jehovah, the Elohim of the Hebrews, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. There's also the personal possessive pronoun. God says, I will be your Jehovah. No, he says, I will be your Elohim and you shall be my people. So when we see the word God, we should recognize that this word communicates God's relationship to his creatures and to his covenant people. Jehovah, the God of Abraham. I will be your God and you shall be my people. And you see this reflected in a number of related names. El, a shortened form of the name, meaning mighty one. El Elyon, meaning God most high. El Shaddai, meaning God Almighty, God All-Sufficient, and Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, God is imminent, Emmanuel, God imminent, God with us, God incarnate, even the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He's imminent, he's present, he's incarnate in human flesh and human nature and yet he is God. So we're reviewing that, but now we're transitioning to the doctrinal and polemical portion of our lesson, where we're seeking to summarize the teaching of Scripture as a whole through the consideration of relevant questions and controversies that arise in connection with this name Elohim. First, does the name Elohim reveal a plurality of divine persons? We affirm, as we've just said, Elohim does reveal not just a plenitude of divine attributes, but a plurality of divine persons. We affirm that. And if you look at Genesis 1.26, it's clear that there is a plurality, not just in the name Elohim, but in addition, there's a plurality that's set in place with respect to the pronouns that God uses of himself as within the triune Godhead, there is communication taking place. Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc., etc. And somebody says, well, that's God talking to the angels. Not so. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. So God's not going to say, okay, Gabriel and... um, Michael, of course, that's a debate whether Michael is uh, Christ or whether, whether he's a separate angel. But let's just say he's a separate angel. Michael and Gabriel gather around God and, and he says, let's make man in our image. Well, man's made in the image of God exclusively, not in the image of God plus his angelic uh, partners in this conversation. Clearly, the us is in reference to God Himself. And Elohim being plural, it's only natural that we would see that there is a plurality within the Godhead. Otherwise, to whom is God speaking? Right? When He creates the light, He says, let there be light. He doesn't say, let us make light. So God is able to speak. If there's nobody else that He's conversing with, He's able to speak in a way that doesn't terminate on the other person that He's conversing with. But here he speaks in a way where it's clear that he's conversing with someone. There's some plurality in this conversation. And so we understand it to be within the triune Godhead. God, one God subsisting in three persons. The persons of the Trinity are expressing their agreement. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So it's not just plenitude, as you see in Hebrew nouns, but it's plurality, as you really don't see any precedent for this type of pluralization of the pronouns, aside from this dynamic with respect to the plurality of persons within the Godhead. And chapter 3, verse 22, we see another example in Genesis. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. So there's that plural pronoun. You say, well, that's just like the Queen of England. You see, we and us and come to my tea party and we can, you know, whatever. But, but here's the thing. There's no example of that in the Bible. This is, people try to say it's a plural of majesty, you know, the the Queen of England puts up her pinky finger and says, we and us, but the fact of the matter is, the Queen of England does not appear in the Bible. So, where exactly do you have that royal, uh, majestic sort of plural in the Scriptures? You don't find it. It's something that people have imposed later in history. Also, Genesis 11, verse 7, With respect to the Tower of Babel, come, says the Lord, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. So God is using that plural pronoun. Same thing in Isaiah 6, verse 8, when he says to the prophet, Who will go for us? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Plurality. And you can see in the New Testament, that the name God, which is, of course, Theos, not Elohim, because it's Greek, not Hebrew, but still, there's a continuity of thought here. The authors of the New Testament, generally speaking, are Jews. And so, Theos is the equivalent of Elohim in many respects. And so, you see this being applied 
across the board, as we'll see in a moment, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But for now, we're simply affirming that Elohim reveals a plurality within the divine persons. Second, we ask, is the name Elohim inconsistent with a Unitarian notion of God? We affirm, yes, Elohim, that name and its meaning is inconsistent with a Unitarian notion of God. In other words, the idea that God is not just one essence, but also one person and not three persons. And you can't consistently maintain Unitarianism given this name Elohim. Because as we've seen with the plural noun, the plural pronouns, that we have God himself described as a plurality. And beyond that, we can say God is love. 1 John 4.8, 1 John 4.16, God is love. How can there be love if God is not love? God's the creator. Love is a perfection of God. We have it to some degree, but God has it in total perfection. Otherwise, he couldn't have created it and designed it to be reflected in his creation. So if you're a Unitarian, where is the eternal ground of love? Where's the perfection of love? If God is one person, how can he have a concept in any sense of a loving relationship? And if he can't have any concept of a loving relationship, how could he create loving relationships? Now, again, you, you can apply this um, in, in a haphazard way and say, well, then everything that happens in the world has to trace back to God's character. No, okay? But the Bible tells us that God is love, and love presupposes some subject and object within the divine persons. God in his one essence is but one subject. God is one. But within the relationships of the persons, there is something of a, we could say, and I'm using a technical term just to avoid getting charged with heresy, a hypostatic or personal plurality. Let's look at Psalm 2, verse 7. See, we can find this with, with the New Testament tied behind our, behind our backs. Psalm 2, verse 7. The Father, or, or well, it's the Father, but let's say Jehovah is saying that He's set His King on Zion's holy hill. Verse 7, there's a transition, and the King is here speaking. I will declare the decree. Jehovah has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And I'm simply pointing out that there's a conversation between these two persons in the Godhead. So you have Jehovah, undoubtedly fully divine, and Jehovah's Son, whom we know from numerous other scriptures to be the Lord Jesus Christ, who is divine. Okay? But the, Jehovah is speaking to His Son. And there is a relationship there. There's a conversation. There is a you. You are my son. There is a you within God. And there is a me within God in relation to the you. So there, there are these pronouns that indicate a plurality and a relationship. Psalm 110 
and verse 1. Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. There's the Father speaking to the Son. Jehovah is speaking to David's Lord. There's a conversation, there's communication, there's communion, and there is fellowship. We're told in John chapter 1 and verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The intimate love of the Father and the Son is conveyed to us in this imagery of a Father and a Son embracing the Son in the bosom of the Father. Elohim reflects that. And if you're a Unitarian, I'm guessing you're probably really excited about love and not so excited about some other things that appear in the Bible. But the fact is, it's actually love that is the undoing of your entire theology. Because if God is not love, then there's no basis for love. And if God is not Elohim, then God is not love. So Islam, Judaism, all of these Unitarian religions fall to the ground. Thirdly, is the name Elohim properly applied to the Messiah? Psalm 45, 6. This is a psalm speaking to us of Christ as the royal bridegroom of His church. Psalm 45, 6. After speaking of the Messiah here with grace poured upon his lips and he's riding forth for truth, humility, and righteousness. Verse 7 is going to tell us how God has anointed him with the oil of gladness, the Messiah, anointed one, Christ. But notice verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So here we're told the Messiah is God. Your throne, O Messiah, but it doesn't say Messiah, it says, O Elohim. And then you go to the second half of the next verse, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. So this is telling us that the Messiah is both God, Elohim, and he is fully man. In fact, he has companions, verse 7, and he's been anointed with the oil of gladness, in other words, the Holy Spirit, more than his companions. So as man, he has fellows and peers, but as God, he rules over all forever and ever. But that name Elohim there is applied to the Messiah. Also, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 This is the Emmanuel prophecy where we're told, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Now it's the shortened form of Elohim, but it's clear that this is communicating to us that there would be a virgin birth of the God-man. And that's brought into clearer focus. You go to chapter 9. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice right there you have Christ as God and man. Uh, You have him as a child who's born, that's his humanity. You have him as a son who's given. The Father gave the Son to be the Savior of the world. 
So he's a child-born human. He is a son given, even the Son of God. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we did a series on this a number of years ago, but Mighty God is, is not the best translation. The word is El Gibor. It's, it's again the shortened form of Elohim that's often used in these types of names and descriptions. El Gibor. Gibor meaning mighty man, mighty soldier. David had you know, his uh, Israelite navy seals, uh, his army rangers, his mighty men. That's the word here. So I think it's better translated divine warrior. Divine warrior. Uh, this is the word, by the way, uh, Psalm 37. I noted in my Bible reading this morning, I noticed this. Psalm 37, when it says, steps a man takes are established by the Lord. And our translations add the word uh, steps a good man takes because it seems unclear. Well, it doesn't apply to every man. It only applies to a good man or a godly man that God establishes his steps. But the word there as well that's translated man is actually this word gibor, mighty man. You see this frequently in the Old Testament where you, you have to look behind the word man. There are several different words, all of which have significance. One of them is Adam. One of them is mighty man. Uh, there's another one for fallen man. It's very interesting behind that uh, behind the English, there's some nuances. Uh, it's the steps of a mighty man, the steps of one of the soldiers in God's army, in other words. The steps of God's mighty men are established by himself. Well, here he's the divine mighty man, the God man, the divine warrior. So you can see Elohim is applied. And then you get to the New Testament. And it really starts, what was a trickle in some sense, or a stream becomes a mighty river. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 6, verse 5. Of whom, speaking of the Jewish people, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul is explicit here. From the Jewish people... Christ came according to the flesh, but who is Christ? He is the one who is over all the eternally blessed Theos, or for Paul as, as a Hebrew, as a Jew, Elohim. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1, 1, 1. 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifested in the flesh. And you want to make sure that you have that God was manifested in the flesh. There's some Bibles that change it, and we, it, we, we sorrow over that. But it's God manifested in the flesh. And 1 John 5.20, another example, Acts 20.28, 20, Elohim, Theos, is applied to Christ. Fourthly, does the application of Elohim to image-bearing creatures undermine the creator-creature distinction? So we've said before that there's God, and then there's everyone and everything else. There's God in Himself and everything else. God is the Creator. Everyone and everything else is the creature and is created by God. 
And Paul talks about this in Romans 1, that we ought not to worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So this is one of the building blocks of biblical doctrine and of the Christian worldview, the creator-creature distinction. Now, the fact that the term Elohim is applied to image-bearing creatures, someone might say, well, doesn't that undermine the creator-creature distinction? Remember, we saw that Jehovah is only applied to God Himself. But this word for God is applied more broadly among the creatures. Is that a problem? Is that a stumbling block? And we could say, well, with our implicit faith in the Bible, we could say, of course it's not, and end the discussion. But let's, let's uh, cultivate our reasonable faith here and understand why it's not. So again, Romans 1.25, man exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we know the creator-creature distinction is important and that there's a lie going around that undermines it, namely the satanic lie, Isaiah 14, 12 and following, I will be like the Most High. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 5, uh, if you eat of the tree, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan wanted to be on par with God. He wants mankind to lust after that equality with God and to undermine this distinction. But the Scriptures are clear that the proper use of Elohim applies to God only. So the fact that the Bible uses Elohim in an improper sense, in a sort of extraordinary derivative sense, does not in any sense detract from the exclusivity of its proper application. So for instance, Though the word Elohim is applied to civil magistrates, though it is applied to angels, though it is applied in that more general way, that improper sense, listen to Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. So the Bible itself makes a distinction between Elohim and its proper significance, its fundamental significance, in which case there's no other God, no creature before God. Of course, that's a contradiction in terms. Certainly no one or nothing that God has created afterward will become God. There is no other God, nor ever shall there be. Despite the fact that the the word is used in various ways, not in its proper sense is it used in various ways. It's used exclusively of our God. Chapter 44, verse 8 of Isaiah. He says, Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. God knows everything. So if he doesn't see any other gods, you can rest assured there are none out there. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So why does God sometimes apply the term Elohim to creatures? Well, He does it as we saw last time uh, for a variety of reasons. 
One is to show his superiority almost by way of sarcasm or by pointing out the counterfeit nature of this entity, such as false gods. He uses Elohim. He speaks of them as gods, but then he repudiates them as false gods. So he can use it in that sense, that people are treating them like they should be treating him. They're relating to them as if these idols were gods, but they're not. And yet, because they're treated as gods, they're, they're given that designation, such as Satan. He's the god of this world. He's the object of worship and obedience for the world. Doesn't mean he's on par with God, but in a functional sense or in a professed sense, false gods are called Elohim or Theos. Um, and 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6 says, There are lords many and gods many in heaven and earth, but for us there's one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the Bible itself makes it clear that in the proper sense there's only one divine being, one Elohim and one Jehovah. Uh, there's also by analogy and representation, God's image-bearing creatures bear the image of God. Therefore, angels and men are sometimes in some capacities given this title Elohim, and it is absolutely the case that civil magistrates are given this title in the text we looked at last time. But that's because they bear the authority of God. Just like when God said to Moses, okay, since you're squeamish about talking to Pharaoh, I'm going to give the message to you, and then you'll be as God to Aaron, or you'll be as God to Pharaoh, and you'll speak through Aaron, who will be your prophet. So God is saying, we're, we're going to have a little bit of a role play here. You're afraid to be my prophet, Moses, so I'm going to give you the message. You'll be as God, and then you'll give it to your prophet Aaron, and he'll speak it to Pharaoh. And he says that Moses will be God to Pharaoh. Well, he'll be representing God in that function, but it, it obviously doesn't mean that he's on par with God in the proper sense. So we have to look at these things in light of the teaching of Scripture. Fifthly, is the word Elohim in Psalm 8, verse 5, best translated as angels? You made him a little lower than the angels, or for a little while lower than the angels. Is that the best translation of Elohim there as angels? Or should we say, you made him a little lower than God? Or you made him for a little while lower than God? Uh, the best translation is angels here, and that's what we affirm. Why? Because we're told in Hebrews chapter 2 that this is the way the apostle takes it. Yes, he's probably using the Septuagint, but this is the, the aspect of the verse that he highlights as significant because he's quoting it in relation to the superiority of Christ over the angels. Christ, during his humiliation, was for a little while lower than the angels, but now he's crowned with glory and honor. And the right hand of God, wherein sits the king of the universe, is occupied by a man, not an angel. So he was for a little while lower than the angels, and now he's exalted above the angels, crowned with glory and honor. And so... Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. 
you have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in, all, in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower, or as the marginal note says, for a little while lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So the apostle here is addressing Jesus in relation to angels. He quotes from Psalm 8, verse 5, and uses the translation that says angels instead of God. And then as he's expounding that translation, he says that Jesus is the fulfillment of this, who was made a little lower or for a little while lower than the angels. Verse 9 is Paul's inspired exposition of verse 5. So Paul's not just quoting the, the translation at this point, he's now supplying the meaning. It's angels. And there's no way to consistently apply the inspiration of Paul's exposition of Psalm 8, verse 5 in chapter 2 of Hebrews. No way to consistently apply it without translating Elohim as it sometimes is rendered in Psalm 8, 5 as angels. That's what the Holy Spirit is telling us from Paul that, that we should understand the meaning to be. Now, understand, this is something that needs to be corrected with all due respect. Psalm 8, verse A, uh, Psalm 8, selection A in our blue Psalter says, yet you created him to be just less than one divine. With all due respect, with all due respect, that's a problem. That's a problem. I'm not saying it's heretical. I'm saying apart from a boatload of charity, it might be heretical, but we have that charity hopefully in our hearts. But you created him to be just less than one divine. Uh, first of all, there's a problem in saying just less than one divine. Nothing is just less than one divine. Either you're divine or you're infinitely inferior. Nobody's just a little bit less than God. That violates the creator-creature distinction. So we can't, no matter what we're going to say, if, if Elohim means God there, we can't say just less than God. There's no chain of being that leads from man to God. That's a problem with our theology, if we're saying that. Also, we could say, if this is in reference to Christ, that His human nature, His human nature was less than one divine, or, or that His human nature was inferior to the divine nature because He has two natures. So you could have a pecking order and say He has a human nature, and the human nature is beneath His divine nature. That would be completely orthodox. But we can't say that, uh, that, well, that's not what the translation says. It doesn't say you created his human nature to be less than his divine nature. It says you created him to be just less than one divine. Him and one are, are the sorts of terms that point to a person, not a nature. There is no sense in which 
the person of Christ is less than God. Jesus as one, as Him, He is divine. He is a divine person who has taken on a human nature. And if we had time, if we ever get to Christology, we'll see that Jesus is not a human person. He's a divine person with a human nature, which has been taken into union with His divine nature in the one divine person. Jesus is not a human person, because if you say He's a human person, now He's two persons, because we know He's a divine person. So if the incarnation gives Him a human personality, now He is two persons, and now we become Nestorian heretics. Uh, I'm not saying selection 8a is heretical. I'm just saying it requires a lot of charity. Uh, Psalm 8b, you made man just less than God. You made man just less than God. So in one sense, we're avoiding the Christological problem by translating it as man. So we're saying here, well, it's not necessarily, we're not thinking of Christ per se, but we're thinking of mankind. That definitely helps us in terms of man being less than God. Okay. However, it still creates problems with the creator-creature distinction. Why? You made man just less than God? Is man just less than God? Or for a little while less than God, as the Mormons teach? So, under no circumstances can anyone or anything be just less than God. So, again, the issue is we need to go to Hebrews 2 and look at Paul's citation of Psalm 8, verse 5, but then in verse 9, his explanation where he makes it clear that it's a reference to angels, as is sometimes the case in the Old Testament. The mighty ones, the angels. And that's how we need to translate that. So I'm not accusing the blue psalter of being heretical. I love the blue psalter. We use the blue psalter. It's a wonderful psalter in many respects. But this aspect here, we need to, we need to stand with Paul that it should be angels. Fifthly, sixthly, do God-ordained human authorities bear God's authority? Do God-ordained human authorities bear God's authority, and we distinguish. We distinguish. Um, Romans 13, 1 through 7, tells us that the authorities that God has established bear the power of the sword as delegated from Him. So Romans 13 let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So God is the source of all civil authority, whether it be in the family, the church, or the state, but obviously this is an example in relation to the state. Psalm 82 says that civil judges and magistrates are gods, Elohim, because they bear that image of God in the sense of dominion and rule and authority. Now, the distinction that we need to make here that keeps us from just accepting that statement wholesale that God-ordained human authorities bear God's authority, the distinction we need to make here is between the authority itself in the abstract and the authority figures who exercise that authority in the concrete. So we would say that every authority, every authority 
every aspect of human authority that God has delegated to our leaders in the family, church, and state. Let's think of the state here for a moment, though. Every aspect of that authority that He's delegated to the civil government, we must honor and obey. If God has commissioned and delegated the civil government to perform certain functions in a certain way, and they're fulfilling that, we, in response to that, have a duty to honor and obey. So the authority that comes from God by His delegation is something we need to honor and obey. But that's, that's fine and dandy in an abstract sense. But what about when people take authority and usurp authority and exercise authority by force using powers and using authority over the the nation or over the state or over the community that God never delegated to them. Uh, We're told there's no authority except from God. So if they're using authority they didn't get from God, it's not authority at all. Let me say that again. There is no authority except from God. So if the state exercises authority it didn't get from God, it's not authority at all. And this is where people misinterpret this verse and they say, oh, there's no authority figure except from God. So you have to do everything the civil government says to do. Not so. There's no authority except from God. That's just as much a rebuke to the civil government as it is to the citizens. Because the civil government only has authority to exercise the power given by God. Anything beyond that jurisdiction, anything against that standard, does not possess the God-ordained authority that requires submission. So, uh, when we see authority figures who are commanding us, for instance, to sin, commanding us to break any of the Ten Commandments, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, refused the statist propaganda, refused to sin against God when they were commanded by the state, uh, even so we have a duty to disobey. It doesn't mean we can dishonor the civil government. We still ought to honor, but we don't have a duty to obey. We still should be respectful of that the fact that the person is in office, in the providence of God, holding civil office, so we should respect that, but we ought to disobey when they command us to disobey God. We we obey God rather than men. Secondly, if the civil government commands us with respect to something outside the God-ordained sphere of jurisdiction, such as every Thursday, wear purple polka-dotted pajamas, well, that's not a sin, as far as I know, uh, to wear purple polka-dotted pajamas every Thursday. There's no law of God that says that you can't do that, okay? So therefore, does the government have the authority to force everybody at gunpoint to wear purple polka-dotted pajamas because, hey, they're not forcing us to sin? Well, uh, they would be exercising that authority outside of their God-ordained sphere of jurisdiction. And so we would have no obligation to obey that commandment. And in one sense, by obeying it, we might obey it at gunpoint because if we don't obey it, they're just going to put us in a FEMA camp and give us our purple polka-dotted pajamas to wear for the rest of our stay. 
um, we might do it for that reason to avoid the punishment or to avoid wrath, but we wouldn't have a duty to do it for conscience sake. And there may be some circumstances where in our Christian liberty, we say, I'm not going to wear the purple polka dotted pajamas. Why? Because that's going to be a stumbling block that's going to give the upper hand to a status tyrannical government to impose its will in further and further ways, usurping God's authority and tyrannizing the people. So as a way of sort of standing in the gap for the good of society, I'm going to not wear the purple polka dotted pajamas. So uh, those are the two reasons why, we're, why a Christian is free to respectfully disobey the government when we're commanded to sin or when the command is outside of the God-ordained sphere of jurisdiction. All right, let's make some practical application and then we'll uh, head downstairs for our meal. Practically speaking, we need to worship God alone. There is no God but one. God says, I know not of any other. No other rock, no other God, no other Savior. We ought to worship God alone, not worship the creature, but the Creator who is God blessed forever. We need to observe the Creator-creature distinction, not just that we would not worship the state, but from the standpoint of conservative politics, that we would not worship our own money, our own private sector success, our own outward enjoyment and ease. We shouldn't worship our own family. We shouldn't worship anything other than God, even, even the good gifts of God, even the church of God. There are so many things that we could easily put in the place of God. Most often, it's the person we're looking at in the mirror every morning, but we, we need to be aware of the danger of idolatry. Worship God alone. You recall in Revelation on two occasions, chapter 19, verse 10, in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, when John the Apostle saw the glory of one of the angels and was tempted to fall down, and the angel said, oh no, get up, worship God and Him alone. So if John the Apostle can, as it were, inadvertently, I don't think he had any ill intent there, okay? I think it just he was blinded by the glory of everything. But if he needs that reminder, how much more do we need it? As, as he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Uh, the name Michael, the archangel, who, who is uh, either the angel of the covenant, Christ, or the most exalted of the created angels. People debate this back and forth. Uh, but the name means who is like God. And Michael in the scriptures, either Christ or the chief angel, the archangel, one of the two, is the chief enemy of Satan who said, I will be like the Most High. And so we need to have the mindset reflected in that name, Michael, who is like God. And we must resist the temptation to fall in line with the devil. I will be like the Most High God. So worship God alone. Secondly, honor God's image. Honor God's image. God's image is the basis of the sanctity of life, liberty, and authority throughout this world. God's image placed in man is what makes us to be meaningful uh, in terms of our life, liberty, and the authority that we either exercise or submit to in this world. And so at an individual level, 
God says He's created man in His own image, male and female. All men, women, boys and girls, little babies in the womb, zygotes, okay, fetuses, however people want to say that, but every human being has individual rights and liberties because every human being is made in the image of God. Even after the fall, Genesis 9, verse 6, God institutes the capital uh, punishment under Noah. Why? Because man bears the image of God. And that's why we need to treat people with respect, even our enemies. Uh, made after the similitude of God, James 3, verse 9. We respect the image of God and we respect the rights and liberties of others. Secondly, family authority. God made man in his own image, male and female. And that image is somehow connected with man's dominion. It's, we shouldn't equate image with dominion. There are many image bearers who are not really taking dominion. Uh, some have physical and mental uh, inabilities and disabilities that keep them from really taking dominion. So the image of God is more than that, but it involves dominion. It's connected with dominion, that representative authority in the family. 1 Corinthians 11.3, that the head of every woman is man. The head of man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. There is an authority structure between men and women that's reflected. And husbands and fathers need to exercise that authority, ruling their households well, 1 Timothy 3. Proverbs 1.8 speaks of not only the instruction of a father, but the law of your mother, respecting the maternal authority of a mother over her children. And we're told in Proverbs 31.26 that the law of the mother ought to be the law of kindness. The law of kindness. Uh, and so you have that uh, respect and, and uh, acknowledgement that we ought to have toward family authority. Also, we've said state authority. Uh, we're going to skip that because we've already addressed that, but we need to honor our authority figures insofar as God put them there and insofar as they're acting within their jurisdiction. Fourthly, church authority. We need to respect that this is the church of God that He purchased with His own blood that he built on the foundation of his son, that he is populating with his sons and daughters, that he is building as a kingdom. Uh, what's bound on earth in church discipline is bound in heaven by God. He set his, his image. He set the son who is the image of the father. He set him as the foundation stone of the church and he's placed his image and is renewing his image in every living stone that he's building up into a spiritual house of worship. In the gospel ministry, we need to hear the preaching of the word from the scriptures in keeping with the scriptures as God pleading through the minister. God is pleading for us to repent and be saved. God is pleading with us, urging us, commanding us, comforting us through the authoritative ministry of the gospel of reconciliation. So we honor God's image and that representation of God's authority and of God's character. We embrace God as our God. Uh, God says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. 
And again, it's never my Jehovah, it's always my God. So is God your God? Do you embrace God? Even on the cross, Jesus, as He's experiencing the wrath of God, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By faith, He clings to the promise and clings to God as His God. So we need to embrace God personally and experience His love personally and have a relationship with Him as the one who is our Father by creation and all the more by redemption. Finally, keep yourselves in the love of God who is love. When you think of the word God, think of love. I know people abuse this. I understand God is love and then they disregard His judgment and His anger and wrath, but isn't it the case in Reformed circles we can be tempted to overcompensate in the other direction and so we don't revel in the love of God. When we see the word God, we don't think of His love being demonstrated for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't keep ourselves in the love of God, cultivate the love of God, and show the love of God to others. Beware of that. Make sure that your view of God is such that set before your face at all times is the fact that God, Elohim, is love. And eat. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we love you, and we love you because you first loved us and gave your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a clearer sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that you would enable us to see that word God. Uh, even as we often speak of the name of Jesus as the sweetest name that we ever heard and the name Jehovah as one that causes us to remove our sandals or our shoes for we are on holy ground. May we also know this name Elohim as the name of our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who made us in His own image and who is perfecting us to shine like our Father to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.